Hi, my name is Kritika. Please tune in to weekly episodes of my podcast. Have you heard the sound of your own voice? If you suffer from anxiety or depression and need some reassurance that you will be all right soon. My book is available at the Chennai Book Fair till March 6. In this week's episode, I will speak about the preset agenda which defines childhood. and the pressure a child faces while attempting to live up to the expectations of his parents or school it's an annual spectacle telecast on espn the competitors are aged 8 to 15 a spotlight shines on them when it's their turn to spell the pressure to spell correctly is palpable given that a win automatically catapults one towards a bright future The trouble is spelling bees prioritize memorization. Endless hours which could have been spent playing a sport or learning a musical instrument are lost with a tutor teaching the origin of words or rote learning from a list of multisyllable words. This fruitless exercise is relentlessly pursued because it paves the way for an Ivy League education. What makes this endeavor so compelling? It's the high that accompanies a win. You are looked upon as a hero. You are the role model to a younger student. Your parents are proud of their trophy child. Your school parades you to the world as the new shining star. The praise and adulation fuel you to win more prizes. The validation is appealing and you single-mindedly chase it. one cannot build self confidence on stilts it is also not conditional on victory in a competition the implication is that you have to be the best at some activity deemed viable by a faceless college admissions committee to get a coveted stamp of approval the damning follow up question is who are you if not the winner of an olympiad or an international piano competition How is it enough to simply be when you're competing with a 16-year-old who swam the English Channel for a seat at a prestigious school? When I think back to my time at school, I remember long stretches spent reading and jotting down stray thoughts. These endeavors were not directed towards any grand ambition. It's what I did when the class teacher did not show up and a lull descended amongst my classmates. With a wave comes a break and with a word comes release. There's a powerful emotion that accompanies the translation of what we feel, a largely metastatic condition into a benign simple address. My English teacher in high school said writing was a liberating experience. In large part, I learned this from second-hand exposure when my grandfather wrote reminiscent letters to his old friends. Most of his colleagues called and requested him to write birthday notes because they were always such a pleasure to read. My earliest memories are of him firing away on his ancient Remington Rand, the words flowing freely from his mind to the tip of his fingers. I always thought that there was a certain fluidity with which he narrated events. Transient ephemeral memories metamorphosed beautifully into a tangible creation. and within a short span 
he had molded words to resemble a literary masterpiece. How often do you clean out your workspace? Is it a meditative experience to sort through old files? Do you avoid it for as long as you can? While taking a break, do you sometimes go through the content to reminisce? Maybe I was trying to put off whatever serious business I was supposed to do. Maybe I realized that I would need to work in a chaos-free space to organize my thought process and declutter my mind. I cleaned, but primarily I opened school notebooks to glance through essays and two-sentence poems scribbled onto the last page. It was predominantly onomatopoeia, a feeling, a state of mind, joy, tribulation, melancholy, any melange of sentiments that one can feel, even through shared coexistence with a like-minded intelligentsia. What struck me then was how, with my writing, I could explore frontiers outside my static being, both mentally and physically. It was freeing to transport myself to another world with my writing, even if the sojourn was temporary and the lunch bell brought me out of my reverie into the confines of our old colonial-style classrooms. Of particular solace, then, were the library and sports hours, times when I could read to my heart's content, make notes, and also find inspiration to write. On some days, the amount I wrote was insignificant. My quest was to capture what I felt, and if possible, quantify the same, so I could revisit it at a later time. There was no award to be won, no recognition to be gained. It was simply an exercise that filled me with joy. Where goes the procession of ants reads a blank verse I likely wrote while sitting on a parapet and observing insects moving towards a sweet treat. Each verse ends with, can an ant stray from the line? Our schools followed a curriculum and taught according to a lesson plan. Being in school felt like occupying different rungs of a ladder. What mattered most was forward movement. A teacher decided to promote you and wave you on based on academic performance. What did this assessment do to you? It deprived you of an understanding of present time. You continuously looked forward, but never paused to see where you were. Every activity, it seems, was evaluated based on how it would help you succeed in the future. Could you pursue anything simply because it brought joy? Was that perceived as a suboptimal use of time? The next question was always, what have you done to merit free time? As if joy itself should be delayed and offered as a price for hard work and advancement. The fundamental problem with the statements, you do the best you can, or your future is entirely up to you, is that you slide the entire responsibility for the result on the student. The pressure buildup is because of the compulsive need to stay ahead of the curve. The Facebook posts of senior students who have gotten a prestigious scholarship, the constant comparison to the prodigious cousin or sibling who aced every exam and made it big in life, the necessity to appear perfect always, the never-ending admonition of a helicopter parent. All these reminders weigh like anvils on the mind of students and make them doubt their abilities. Any slight deviation from what we consider an academic optimum is now a failure. 
Since no space is given for errors in the grading system or unforeseen circumstances like a sudden headache, a failure is projected as a natural progression of the student's inability and unpreparedness. In fact, we place such an unhealthy premium on the abstract notion of academic glory that any small failure is inevitably accompanied by feelings of irrepressible shame and guilt. The primary cause for student depression is stress. We celebrate academic success, the perfect score and GPA, the high rank in an entrance exam and the award-winning project. Take the case of students who have topped every school exam, won medals and aced the entrance test. Placing them in an environment where they might not be the best anymore or where they could get an average grade leads to them being insecure, questioning their abilities and feeling inferior to their peers. Add to this the filial pressure to appear perfect always. Land the best job or get the prestigious scholarship from a top-ranked university and you have the formula for stress-induced depression. We live in a callous, self-obsessed world. What we require now is not each other's money. Time is the best gift we can give to students who feel low or upset about their performance. If you can gently assure children that grades are not the be-all and end-all of life, you will be reducing their burden significantly. If possible, remind them about the unique gifts or talents they are endowed with. Tell them unequivocally that they can make the world a better place. Reinforce the attitude that an individual's net worth is not limited to a set of exam grades. One slip-up makes a kid feel like the smallest person in the world. You are looked at as a loser if you don't go to college or if you get a certain GPA or test score. All anyone talks about is how great they are or how great their kid is. Reads a note written by a high school student who died by suicide. The note perturbs me and processing it becomes impossible. I think back to a time when my life hung precariously on whether or not I would get a teaching assistantship in graduate school. A gentle discourse by a former English teacher reminding me of my grandfather waiting at home is the sole reason I am still here. I think about whether this person sought counselling or had any support. Seeing a therapist can aid a depressed person. Someone who is suffering, however, closes himself to all interaction out of fear of being judged. Judgment is meted out in the form of a subtle dismissal. Don't overthink the problem. We are all dealing with the same stresses. You cannot make excuses for performing subpar, is the refrain one hears. Even the most rational mind craves acceptance as normal. Being normal today entails hiding any vulnerability and putting up a strong front. One is left with no choice except to bear the onus of depression alone. At some random juncture, lethargy sets in, a sheer inability to carry on with the act, while fighting a secret battle pushes a person over the cliff. The truth is, success in school is comprehensively engineered by a goal-oriented education system. Supportive parents and constant guidance from teachers, combined with remarkable diligence, did land the student on a pedestal. However, 
Almost everyone overlooks the fact that success in a controlled environment is not a steadfast, sustainable phenomenon. Maintaining your previous trajectory continuously is almost impossible. The route to perceived success is never straightforward or entirely in your control. The real problem is, coming out of high school, you are so used to being at the top of the class that academic success defines you in large part. You don't identify with another way of being. The complicated, misguided appendix to this narrative is that high marks and outstanding performance at the school level are linked inappropriately to mental resilience. The society prematurely pushes you onto a ceremonial stage, one that you do not wish to relegate at any cost. The starting point in the downward spiral is elevated self-expectations. Benchmarking against a previous high and beratement and self-loathing when unable to attain a lofty goal is where the first doubt about whether life is worth living begins. An underrated, relatively unspoken factor which influences school life is the peer group. You are spontaneously drawn to a small subset of students with similar interests. A rigorous curriculum leaves little time to talk openly or exchange deep thoughts. You do go out sometimes with your group to catch a movie. No one has the time or bandwidth, however, to observe a friend's change in behavior. Even a tentative plea for an empathetic year may be met with lip service. We give up on each other too quickly. We discount another person's troubles. Do we have the luxury of giving each other time, knowing several assignments have to be completed before a strict deadline? The perception presented to a suffering student is that others around him have their act together. It is disconcerting to go from brilliant to weak in a few years. That you are vulnerable while others on the same boat can stay afloat gives you the final judgment that you are inept. You end up pretending that all is indeed well, desperately hoping that in the future a miracle is likely. Suicide happens when one is exhausted from the pretense and is unable to carry on parallel lives, one of forced optimism and the other waiting for hope to be reborn. What students do is compare themselves with a prescribed golden standard. Comparison by definition makes one feel inferior. It places you in a constant state of suspension, of feeling like the status quo is not enough. Do you know the mind-numbing pain that accompanies tooth extraction? It's level 10, as in I will soon start screaming kind of agony. A sharp discomfort, which feels much like if someone pounded your head, starts in your mouth and travels in unending ripples all the way to your ears and head. I teared up as I entered the dentist's consultation room, abandoning any thread of self-control. A cheerful girl, likely in her 20s, tells me, I had four teeth extracted three days ago. I am in no pain whatsoever. The Webster defines comparison as the representing of one thing or person as similar to or like another. Have you observed the example given to explain each word in the dictionary? You can even find the word in a sample sentence so that you can understand the meaning in context. If I had to give you an example for comparison, I would say, the tendency of people to draw comparisons will push anyone attempting to do something worthwhile 
into a dark hole of despair. As a society, we place an inappropriate premium on comparing ourselves and others we know to unrealistic standards. It's no wonder that so many around us struggle with depression, often in silence. A comparison is subtle. It does not hit you in the face. Instead, it lurks in hallways and below carpets, waiting to trap an unsuspecting victim. A family friend asks me, which graduate schools are you applying to? When I think that this is a perfectly innocuous question, there's a hasty follow-up. Do you know that so-and-so is only applying to Ivy Leagues? Do your GRE scores compare? The conversation ends abruptly with, stay ahead of the curve, no matter what. Indian Americans exchange notes on how many classes their children attend. In addition to Bal Bhavan over the weekends, my son is taking violin lessons to audition for a spot in the Philharmonic, a parent exclaims. Elsewhere, Indian doctoral students swap stories on which papers were accepted in top conferences. That's two more than the top student last year, a colleague tells me triumphantly. I should mention here that we were at a party and that we couldn't stop to enjoy the moment without comparing our achievements. A few years ago, a friend who had made her mark as an engineer, churning out software code, announced that she wanted to attend law school. You are the best in your field, her mother said, shocked and disappointed. You have always earned more than your classmates, a cousin said. That she considered switching careers became the pivotal discussion point for her family. I had seen this coming for years. One day, she laid out typewritten sheets analyzing Doe v. Bolton, a decision of the United States Supreme Court overturning the abortion law of Georgia. This is my position, she said. Are you able to understand all the points I make here? She asked hopefully. Yes, I do. This is incredibly well thought out, I said smiling. Go for it. Thanks, she said smiling back. This kind of validation is helpful, she said. Transitioning to a top-tier law school and taking a new path towards all that she had dreamed about for a long time. I will tell you the fundamental problem with a comparison. We are limiting the potential of an individual. You want to ask yourself, is doing better than your classmates the optimal approach? How about we speak of attaining mastery instead? How about we ask open questions and actively find out what our friends want to do with their lives? Instead of shushing anyone who goes beyond what is considered preordained conventionality, how about we listen to them as they passionately outline their vision? It's not our place to discourage a peer who wants to strive towards an ambition. Comparison inhibits. It places an unfair cap on what we can strive for. Isn't the real beauty of a dream that it's limitless? When I see anyone struggling to get past the comparison web, I can't help but think of the unwritten stanza, the unfinished experiment, or the incomplete proposal. I wonder where we would all be if we could chart our destiny without defining our bearings based on the position of another. The answers that surface encourage me. We will all be making substantive contributions towards making the world a better place. All that has been mentioned as an idealistic abstraction in commencement speeches and motivational conferences thus far will now be a concrete reality. I have a favor to ask of you. Encourage a student to believe in himself. Sure, this is a hard one to practice. Belief can be a peculiar concept. In some sense, 
each of us creates belief. One does not go far by exhibiting brilliance sporadically. If you can show up day after day and persist, you are likely to make at least infinitesimal progress. You can then look back on the previous days and muster the faith that if you display tenacity, no goal is unattainable. Breathe. If possible, smile. You're going to be more than just okay. You will do fine. If you have trouble believing it, say it out loud. Write it down a few times. Putting it on paper or speaking it adds a sense of finality. Soon enough, the fact that you will tide through becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you have woken up today with the intention of going to school to learn something new or being kind to a classmate, you are not just enough. You are magnificent. Please subscribe so that you do not miss out on an episode.